The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Missing Persons, DNA ID, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll be discussing the tragic and violent stabbing murder of a beloved Louisiana mother and grandmother who was an apartment manager and substitute school teacher. We'll dive into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this show, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast. And be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, The Murder of My Family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam, or by searching for The Murder of My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder of my family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout-outs to any new supporters. And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One last note. Please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that the show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you. And now on with the show. Janice Ashcraft was born on October 19, 1950, to parents Goldie and Shirley Ashcraft. Growing up in a religious family, she attended Mid-City Baptist High School in New Orleans, Louisiana. While she was in high school, 
Janice lost her dad, Goldie, and the family turned to their faith to get them through that difficult time. Janice wound up marrying young, but the marriage didn't work out. It did, however, result in the birth of Janice's first two children. Janice found love again, though, and remarried to Norman Lilly, and together they had three more children. As an adult, Janice suffered terribly from gallbladder problems, but put off treatment. As a result, by the time she sought help, her gallbladder needed emergency surgery, and she was shocked to find out that it had gangrene. Horrified by the news, she once again turned to her faith, promising her Lord that if she got through the surgery okay, she would refocus on being the best Christian she could be. And when she came through the surgery and recovered, she kept her promise, and she began going to church regularly. Janice has been described as someone who never knew a stranger. She was generous, always helping those in need, and loved being a substitute teacher. She also loved to chat, whether that was at her house when you went for a visit or while she was at the store running errands and just bumped into someone. Being a mother of five and a grandmother, Janice was very busy. Alongside her husband, Norman, they took on the job of buying and managing an apartment complex. But it was then, unbeknownst to Janice, that Norman allegedly became unfaithful to her, and his actions and the relationships he pursued would apparently have deadly consequences. On November 13, 1991, just after noon, 41-year-old Janice Lilly was found murdered in a Gretna, Louisiana apartment complex. Janice and Norman owned the building at 521 Hamilton Street and had been working there earlier that morning. That afternoon, one of Janice's friends arrived at the building on Hamilton and found Janice in the office, dead behind her desk. She had suffered stab wounds all in the chest. Investigators put together a timeline and found out that the attack happened between 10.15 a.m. when she was last seen and 12 noon when she was found. Janice's husband, Norman, had seen her earlier that day at around 10.15, talking to a tenant in reference to some back rent and an eviction notice. This gave investigators a tight timeline to work with, and to police, it would seem like a very big coincidence for Janice to be killed by someone else who had some sort of grudge with her right after she spoke to a tenant about the subject of eviction. They felt that an angry tenant who was being evicted might have motive to kill. But there wasn't a quick arrest, and no real movement in the case. Janice's family was left to pick up the pieces, not knowing who had taken her life or why. Then, in 1995, 28-year-old Owenia D.D. Evans and 48-year-old Matthew Thomas were both indicted by a Jefferson Parish grand jury on charges of second-degree murder. At the time, Thomas was already serving a 13-year sentence for a sex offense. A third suspect, 36-year-old Carl Lewis, wasn't indicted. Dee a former tenant of the Lilies, was having an affair with Norman Lilly at the time of Janice's murder. All three tenants had been evicted by the Lilies. It was alleged that Dee Dee offered $600 worth of cocaine to anyone who would kill Janice or Norman Lilly for her. Even though she was asking for a hit on either one, police felt that she preferred Janice dead over Norman so that she could eventually marry him and own part of his properties. But Norman Lilly didn't break his relationship off with Dee Dee. In fact, he became a mole for the police reporting on her behavior and statements she would make. Dee Dee also had information that wasn't released to the public, saying that the murder weapon, a butcher knife, had been wrapped in a towel and shoved under a trailer. Despite having this inside information, which seemingly only the killer would know, Weenie Evans is not behind bars today, and there's been no justice for Janice. 
Three people were suspected and taken before a grand jury, but if none of them is responsible for Janice's murder, then who is? For her part, Dee Dee maintains her innocence. She sent a message to one of Janice's children on Facebook, accusing them of scandalizing her name. She blamed Norman, saying, You need to find her husband. He's the one who did it. And Dee Dee also claims to have passed the lie detector test. Dee Dee asked in the Facebook message, Why do you think I'm out here free? Janice's husband Norman does make an obvious suspect, since many times it's the spouse that's responsible for someone's murder. But at this point, there's nothing that links him to the murder, at least as far as police have made public. It's important to note that while the grand jury did indict two people, they declined to charge the third suspect, meaning that they just weren't wildly indicting anyone and everyone. They had to have specific evidence or reason behind being confident in charging Awenia Evans and Matthew Thomas. Norman Lilly placed himself at the scene as the last person to see Janice alive besides her tenant. If he was the killer, he would have had to have been very cold and calculated waiting for the perfect moment, a time when there was no one in the building and no one expected to show up to murder his wife. And according to him, Janice had potentially just angered a tenant by mentioning an eviction process, so they would have seemingly had a motive. But again, whoever stabbed Janice ten times has not been held responsible. For whatever reason, despite a grand jury being sure enough to return an indictment on two people who seemed to have a good motive, no one's been convicted of Janice's murder, even after almost 31 years. Janice's family, her children and grandchildren, and great-grandchildren now, are still waiting for answers and justice. Gretna, Louisiana, where this happened, has less than 20,000 residents, and it's likely that someone out there, amongst them, has vital information about the murder of Janice Lilly. Hopefully they'll come forward to police. I sat down with Janice's daughter, Denise, to discuss this tragic case and how not having her mom for the past three decades or having answers has affected her life. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastic into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hi, Denise, and welcome to The Murder of My Family, and thank you for coming on to discuss your mom, Janice's case, with us. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I'm happy to have you here and and share this tragic story. Uh, One thing that I found was odd was that in a lot of the news reports that I have access to anyway, there was very little in the way of your mom's case reported, and that's surprising considering that it it seems like a, a really newsworthy story that you think people would have been interested in, they would have picked up on. Um, But we're going to walk through the details as best as you can help fill in the blanks for us. Before we get into all of those details, can you do us a favor and tell us a little bit about your mom and who she was and what she was like? My mom was a mother to five children. Um, She had me and my older brother by her first husband, and she remarried my stepfather, Norman, um, when I was about 
five and a half, almost six. And they had three sons. Um, she was very dedicated to um, the school. She substituted in the school. She was very, um, she had gotten saved um, about two years before she was killed. Um, so she was very dedicated to the church, very into the church family. Um, she was a really uh, interesting woman. Uh, she laughed a lot. She um, she danced. She just had a lot of fun. And most people that knew her, you know, she was the kind of person that could go in the grocery store and have a 20, 30-minute conversation with somebody that she had never met before. She just had that that way about her she was very likable and and this all happened where she was living and and living most of her life this was in what area again we were uh we actually lived in beltrace louisiana and um my stepdad was working for a river company on the river and he got a a settlement when the company merged he decided to leave so he got some money, and they took that money and used it as a down payment on apartments that were owner-financed, um, and they ended up having, like, four complexes, um, and most of the tenants at the complexes were, like, Section 8-type tenants, um, and that's actually where she was murdered at was the office um, where they would collect the rent. So, so it sounds like they both, you know, you mentioned your mom did substitute teaching. Um, your stepfather retires from this company. And they, it sounds like they decide they want to do something different. So they, they come up with these apartment complexes. How long have they been doing that for? It's been um, probably about um, probably about four years okay. um, since they started doing it. and all the complexes were owner finance. So basically they were just running them and collecting the rent and making the payment. Um, they really weren't uh, making a lot of profit. Um, okay. Were they, you know, was your mom and stepfather, were they friendly with the people they typically encountered? Was, were the relationships good with the, the tenants? Uh, absolutely. The, um, the woman, you know, that um, that was arrested and the man as well and the other man that was arrested, they were all known tenants, um, you know, people that mom had paid to, like, clean apartments and fix things and do things. Um, they tried to help, you know, my mom had tried to help people um, that were, you know, in bad situations, um, you know, to help them, give them a helping hand. In 1991, when your mom was killed, what was her, you know, what was the family life like? How was her relationship with your stepfather? Um, I honestly, I honestly don't know how to answer that. I mean, I can remember, you know, him being violent towards her, you know, when I was growing up. Um, looking back, I think that she was in it because she was stuck and didn't know how to get out. Um, I don't think that they had, you know, the kind of marriage that you can look back and say, oh, you know, they loved each other so much. Um, he was just 
you know, somebody that she married and they had all these kids. And I really don't think that she even thought, you know, of anything different because it would have been difficult. So you had seen things that you could point out that were sort of troubling in the relationship. And I, I think as we'll get into a little bit as we go along, you'd find out some more stuff later on that just painted an even uh, a, a darker picture. Right. Yeah. He he definitely did have a violent streak in him. Um, you know, I can remember vividly uh, being about six years old and walking in to show my mom a dress that my grandmother had bought for me to go to school. And I, um, I walked in the room and when I walked in the room, I saw him on top of her punching her. Um, and you know, that's a real vivid memory, you know, for being six. Um, and there were other types of abuse. He actually sexually abused me. Um, and I left home when I was 16, um, just to get out of the house. How how much uh, before your mom was killed, how long before that had you left home? Um, I was 20 when she was murdered. Okay, so you had left home a few years before this happened. I th- actually, I think I had turned 17 when I left, so it would, be, it would have been three years. I know you mentioned your mom being a victim of abuse, too. Was she aware of what happened to you, or is that something you kept from her because you didn't want her to have more stress to, over that? She was aware. Um, I had told somebody at school and the school got involved and we went to counseling and he stopped drinking. He was an alcoholic and he stopped drinking as terms for me to stay in the home. You you see the situation, it, from all accounts, it's not the most ideal situation for your mom to be in, but she's she's maybe feeling stuck. But she's got this business going on. She's active in church. It seems like she's got a lot going on to to sort of keep her busy. But then comes that awful day in 1991 when she was murdered. Can you walk us through the murder itself and what happened and uh, uh, sort of let us know how things unfolded that day? That day was, um, it was eviction day, the day that people had to go in and pay their rent or they would be evicted. Um, everybody had their notices. It was something that they did every month. Um, she was supposed to be substituting at school that day. And Norman had called her and told her that she had to go to the office. Um, so she went to the office and um, somebody went in and stabbed her 21 times. Um, it was described as a crime of passion. Um, her throat was cut, indicating that they didn't want her to talk about something. Um, it's at the time that office where it was, where it actually occurred, they had built like rooms for apartments for people to stay in who worked offshore. Um, and it had a front door and a back door. She was murdered in the back in the office. And whoever did it locked both doors. Um, and she had a friend from church that was going to pick her up for lunch. And when she got there to pick her up, the door was locked. Um, and 
she went across the street, she called somehow she got in. I think maybe she maybe it was the back door that she came in through and saw my mom and called the police. Was there any sign of a robbery or any sign that, you know, someone was after money or anything like that? Absolutely nothing was taken. They had um, a lot of money in my mom's purse on the desk. Not a dollar was taken. Um, There was absolutely nothing taken from the scene. And she was actually murdered with the knife that she was using to make um, baskets with pine cones. She was spray paint the pine cones for teacher appreciation day at the school. So obviously this is a, a big ordeal. The police come. How did you get the news that your mom had been killed? I was actually um, supposed to be bedridden. I was pregnant with my second child. Um, and the pastor's wife called and asked if they could come over. Um, and she came over and she told me that there's been a terrible accident. Um, and so that your mom has been killed. I had to have, um, my husband had to call the doctor and I had to be put on medication because it, the trauma of that actually put me in labor. So I don't really remember a lot, like the first couple of weeks. Um, but I do remember that for however long I thought that it was a car accident. And when somebody, when I heard somebody say stabbed, I just assumed that something stabbed her through the windshield or something. Um, I guess it took my brain a little time to process. Sure. So almost like you're in shock. Right. Oh, and how was the rest of your family? How did they all handle it? Um, I can, you know, I can remember my three little brothers, you know, they were quite young. Um, everybody was just devastated. And, you know, my grandmother, um, she was devastated. Everybody in the family, it, it, it just devastated everyone. Uh, and, you know, the whole time, um, Norman became this person that would talk about, well, you know, what if it was the woman that found her? What if she did it? Or what if so-and-so did it? He was always, like, every time you would see him, he would put these things in your head to make you think, you know, other people, you know, it could have been this person or it could have been that person. And he would tell you, like, all kinds of details, you know, that he supposedly knew, um, you know, things like that. Was um, he, did he seem himself to be upset by your mom's murder? He did at first. Um, and I can remember him, you know, being at the altar at church and uh, crying at the altar. Um you know, everybody had a lot of sympathy for him. The um, a lady from the school collected money because their burial wasn't enough. Um, I mean, the, there was a fund at the church. Um, you know, the whole community really, you know, uh, stood together and supported him and the kids. They did a lot for him and the kids. Yeah, I imagine that had to be a really shocking crime to happen there. Right. 
Definitely so. Yeah, and, and again, no robbery, stabs several times. It does sound like a crime of passion. And, and I, a lot of times the police will start off looking at the people closest to the victim. Were you talked to? Did you ever feel like you might be a, a suspect or anyone in your family? Was your, your stepfather looked at or talked to? He was definitely looked at. Um, I went to the police department on several occasions. Um, I disclosed the sexual abuse to them, and uh, he did not deny it to them, although they couldn't find a record of it. Um, he, They actually took his truck like two or three times to, you know, look for blood or any, you know, evidence. Um, the first detective that was on the case, you definitely knew by talking to him that in his mind, Norman did it and he was just going to do whatever it took and he wasn't going to stop until Norman was in jail. Um, they eventually took him off the case. And when I asked why, I was told that he was too focused on Norman being the murderer. Do you know if Norman had any kind of alibi? Uh, he did not have an alibi. Supposedly, he was painting an apartment um, in another building. Okay. As far as the investigation, there were. It seems like there were no arrests early on. Um, how, how? What was happening in the police investigation uh, early on? Were they were they coming up with any possible suspects? Anyone they thought might have done it? I know you mentioned they shift shifted gears and put a new detective on there because the other guy was hung up too much on on Norman were they looking at anyone else that you know of um I do know that the police did a terrible job of investigating the where the office sat there was an apartment complex that they owned the first one that they bought and it sat long ways next to the apartment next to the office so someone in those apartments could see the back door and somebody else could see the front door um, and those people were not questioned, um, until some of them had actually moved out. Um, the, the police department did not handle that case the way that they should have. So p- potential witnesses that might've seen someone coming or going weren't talked to. Exactly. Hmm. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. How much time passed before there was an arrest? Um, that's a tough one. Let me think. Um, I think it was like two years before um, any arrests were made. And there were three people on the arrest. It was Matthew Thomas, D.D. Owena Evans, and Carl Lewis. Um, Carl Lewis 
they let go because they said they didn't have enough evidence for him. And Dee Dee is actually Matthew Thomas's um, niece. So you have an uncle and a niece um, that are the only two that they say they had enough evidence for. Um, I went and looked at the the records of the police department several times. And anytime you saw Dee Dee talk, you know, in the interviews, she always gave conflicting conflicting um, statements. She would say that this happened, and then she would say, no, that didn't happen, this happened. And um, you definitely couldn't take anything that she said and think that it could be true. Was she a suspect before, or was she, did they suddenly come on to her and arrest her, you know, right before she was arrested? Did they determine she was a suspect? The family did not have any knowledge of any suspects or anything. Um, they actually got us, got me and my older sibling and my aunts together at my grandmother's house and told us that Norman Lilly is responsible for your mother's murder, but he did not kill her, that he had been sleeping with Dee Dee and several other tenants, um, some of them in lieu of paying rent, um, and that Dee Dee had paid her uncle um, in crack cocaine to kill my mom or Norman is what they said. Oh, so it, it seems like it, it came down to, you know, greed or, or some dispute over the money. Uh, maybe perhaps your mom found out what was going on uh, and, and confronted them. What, what do you know about that day, how things happened that the way they did, what was the final straw that, that made this happen? I have no idea. I just know that um, they had a brick thrown through their windshield of their truck um, about a week before she was murdered. Um, and my mom had actually applied for a gun. She was waiting um, the next the day after she was killed. She was to go pick up her gun. They had a 72-hour wait. Um, I know that she felt like her life was in danger. Um I think that, I mean, to me, it, it seems like Norman put her there at that time. It was the perfect time um, for it to happen. I, you know, when I asked Norman, were you sleeping with Dee Dee? He told me it was none of my GD business. And I mean, that told me everything I needed to know. You know what I mean? Sure. I felt like. Instead of just denying uh, it, you know, he, he, you know, he didn't say anything. Right. And it's none of my business. Like, we're not even going to talk about the fact that you were sleeping with the woman who supposedly paid this man, you know, in crack cocaine to have my mom killed. Um, and there is not a time that, um, that he's ever been forthcoming about what really happened. Um, never made any, um, never apologized, never admitted to anything, never anything to me. 
Um, and at the very least, he should have been arrested for conspiracy to commit murder because he was sleeping with the woman who supposedly paid this, her uncle, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it doesn't make any sense that he did not take anything, you know, that he, he wasn't arrested, you know, nothing. Um, and, you know, I have that, that message. I, I friended Dee Dee on Facebook. Um, and I called her and she told me, I asked her, did she do it? And she said, no, I did not do it. I loved your mama. Um, it was Matthew Thomas. He's the one that did it. And then, you know, on the anniversary of my mother's murder, I always post that newspaper article, um, you know, and, and her date of birth and, you know, whatever. And Dee Dee commented on that, that, you know, I was dragging her through the dirt. Her name don't belong on there. And um, she sent me a message. And in that message, it says, instead of point your finger at me, you need to go after the one who actually did it, your dad. Um, so, I mean, it, that's her saying that Norman did it. Sure. Now, I'm curious. Now, she tells you on social media that it was Matthew that was arrested. So, or that was, had done it. So I'm, I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, Matthew was arrested before this DD woman was arrested because she was out Different. free to talk to you? They were actually arrested at the same time. Um, Matthew Thomas and DD were arrested with Carl Lewis. They let Carl Lewis go. Um, the trial was, you know, every time he would go, they would just, you know, say that they were stretching it out and, you know, it would go on and on and on. And then they pull us in a room when we're supposed to, you know, go start the trial. They pull us in a room and they tell us that um, the police department lost all the evidence, the DNA evidence, and that they can't prove that Matthew Thomas did it. And the only thing that we can do is to let him sign a plea bargain. So his plea bargain started out at first degree murder and it ended up being he signs this plea bargain stating that he gets 13 years to run concurrent with the 13 years he was already serving at that time for molesting his own granddaughter. So he gets no extra time and signs a plea bargain that moves him from this little prison, this little jail to a a hardcore prison. And he's now not known as a child molester anymore. Well, don't you think anybody would sign that? Yeah, no extra time. You're not known as a child molester anymore. Yeah, and for stabbing someone fifty times, you get thirteen years. It could be a lot worse. So why wouldn't he sign that? Exactly. It 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 doesn't make any sense. And I never, me personally, I never felt like he did it. Never. I never felt like he was the one that did it. What led the police to those two in the first place? I don't really know. Maybe they interviewed Dee Dee at some point, and she admitted she was having an affair with Norman. Um, I do know that he had gotten Dee Dee pregnant and made her have an abortion. 
um, not long before my mother was murdered. Um, I mean, looking back on it, when you know all the facts that, I mean, here's this man, he's, he's obviously sleeping with all these people. He's having an affair with this woman. Um, and then your mother's murdered it. It kind of looks to me like anybody with common sense would say, well, dang, you know, (laughs) he, he at the very least conspired to have your mom killed because how does this even, you can't look at it and, and make it make sense other than, you know, when you put all the facts down, it, I don't know. Mm. Did he do it? I don't know. Did she do it? I don't know. But I would say in my heart of hearts, if I had, if looking at all the facts, um, emotions to the side, just looking at the facts, if you present this to someone and say, this is what happened. It looks like he did it or she did it. One of the two. Hmm. Did you ever confront Norman and just ask him flat out if he had anything to do with killing your mom? Um, I tried to. He would not discuss it. Absolutely would not discuss it. Hmm. He had a, it's none of your business, what I do, what I did kind of attitude. Wow. And so he was never arrested or charged with any crimes? No. Well, yeah, Matthew Thomas is given 13 years with this plea deal, which seems, you know, outrageous for someone that stabbed someone 50 times. And was he, uh, did he do his time and was released from prison? The charge was actually downgraded to manslaughter for stabbing her 21 times. Manslaughter. Oh, was that charge as a plea bargain? Okay. You could see the work that it started out as first degree murder, and then it went down until it got to manslaughter. How does, and the terms run concurrent? It, it just doesn't make sense. It's it's how do you stab someone fifty times and it's manslaughter? It, you, know. you don't. That's yeah. the, you know, and yeah. I, and that's you know, and then you know being a human being then in my mind you're thinking well you know what is going on like how is this you know it, it conspiracy theories i mean you know how does this even happen like you know what what is the police department hiding or what's going on here because something just doesn't make sense yeah i mean i i, I can see and i'm not a legal scholar but i can see you know, someone gets into a bar fight and they punch someone, they fall down and hit their head and they die, something like that being manslaughter. But to stab someone 50 times, you're clearly trying to murder them. Um, I, I just... It, yeah. it, was, it was 21 times, and that's clearly murder. It's a crime of passion. It, it's um, it, That's the kind of thing that really is murder. You know what I mean? It, somebody actually went there with the intent to kill her. Sure. That's murder. That's the definition of murder. Yeah. And I, I wonder if part of it's because they did lose some evidence and they were worried he was going to get off altogether. So they they just said, let's do this plea deal so he gets some kind of time. Yeah. And then he gets nothing. Um, the only thing. The only thing that I can say is that um, when I got noticed that he was going to get out, he was going to come up for parole, 
um, I went down to the prison and told them that he had um, two prior felonies. And Louisiana is a three-strike state. And I said, I don't even believe he did it. But I do believe because he took that plea bargain and closed her case, he needs to stay there for his full 13 years. And did he stay there for the full 13 years? He sure did. And then he got out of prison and went on with his life? Then he got out of prison and went on with his life. I tried to, um, I contacted Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to see if I could um, speak to him. I wanted to ask him face to face, did you do it? And do you know who did? Um, and he denied it. He said that he didn't want to, he did not want to be contacted by me. Hmm. And the charges against Dee Dee, was she charged with actually murdering, like helping to stab uh, your mom? Or was she charged as, a, you know, someone who, who organized it and, and hired uh, her nephew to do it? Or her she uncle, excuse me, her uncle. She was not charged with anything. They kept her in jail for drug charges and ju and just let her go. She was not charged with anything. Okay, so she's never faced any kind of justice or, or been charged in anything connection to, to your mom's murder? Absolutely not. Well, and I, I know you did send me some of the te some of the uh, social media message you, you exchanged with her, and she claimed that she had taken a, uh, a lie detector test and passed it and... Do you believe any part of her story or do you think that she's, you know, guilty as, as anyone could be guilty in this case? I think that she's guilty as anyone. And, you know, at, at the very least, um, she absolutely knows what really happened and who's really responsible. She did. She had to have had some role in it. Um, I, I can't say, you know, that she's the murderer. I can't even say that Norman's the murderer. All I know is that if you look at all the facts of the case, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. It makes sense whatsoever that she wasn't in charge with anything because it clearly says that she gave her uncle $600 in crack cocaine. Well, if that really is what happened, then she should have been charged, and she wasn't. It's something, something going on there just doesn't seem to jibe um and i also look at it as if he's you know, a desperate addict that's there that was paid in crack why wouldn't he take the money why wouldn't he take your mom's purse um exactly. that doesn't exactly. add up it does not add up whatsoever it, it it doesn't make any sense you're talking about people that are on section eight living food stamp to food stamp those kind of people would have taken the money it was in a bank envelope in view, and it was not taken. Yeah. If you're going to take $600 in crack cocaine to murder someone, then you certainly you know, wouldn't be out of the question for you to take a bunch of uh, uh, rent payments and stuff. Exactly. It doesn't make any sense. Hmm. And, it, you know, as a, that was my mom. And as her daughter, I don't feel like I'll ever have peace about what happened until somebody can explain that to me. I feel like, you know, she was murdered and there's nothing I can do to make the truth come out. I've tried. I called the FBI and said, you know, I have information 
about my mom's case. Nobody even called me back. I've called the the chief of police at the Gretna Police Department, and he won't return my calls. It's very, very frustrating. I, you know, I'm frustrated just hearing it. So I can only imagine how your family feels getting this kind of uh, lack of response. And, you know, the, the family unit is destroyed. I have siblings that I haven't talked to in years because they are still connected to Norman. And is, is he still, uh, is he still alive, Norman? He's still alive. He, um, in 2009, when I read that article and realized, oh my God, you know, Norman was sleeping with this woman. Um, I cut my relationship off with him, um, and moved from Louisiana to a different state. Um, and I called him and told him, you're responsible and I will not stop until my last breath telling everyone that you're responsible. I'm calling the FBI. I'm calling the police. And um, he packed up and went to Scotland where he came from. So as far as you know, he's still out there living his life. And um, Dee Dee and her uncle, are, they're, they're alive as well out there living their lives? Right. Hmm. Very, very frustrating and very... Uh... Uh, just the whole losing the evidence to going down to a manslaughter charge. It just a lot of, uh, a lot of things here just don't seem to, to, to be up to uh, standards. It doesn't, at the very least, it doesn't make sense why DD and Norman weren't arrested or, or why Norman wasn't arrested and DD wasn't charged. Hmm. If what they say, if what they say really happened and she paid her uncle and crack cocaine to do it, then she should have been arrested. Yeah. She's guilty of a crime. Even if Norman's not involved, she, she, you know, if she's, if they're saying that this guy was paid by her to, to kill your mom, that's a crime. I, I it boggles exactly. my mind. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and you can't negate the fact that he was sleeping with her. How is that not conspiracy to commit murder? Yeah. And he wasn't sleeping with her before the murder. He was sleeping with her before and after the murder. And so her, your mom's murder didn't even stop him from having this relationship with her. Exactly. Wow. Meanwhile, he's up on, you know, at the altar at church crying, you know, about his wife's murder. And he's gallivanting around at night with her. Are you kidding me? Well, it it now it's been thirty years without your mom. Um, you're you're not getting the justice that you feel she deserves and that you want for her. What's the hardest part of this thirty years uh, you you've been without her? What do, what do you miss most about her? I miss just knowing that I have her, knowing that um, that I have someone that I can go to you know, to give me advice, knowing that, and, you know, I look at, I have six kids and I look at my kids and they don't know what it's like to have a family. They don't know what it's like to have a grandparent. They don't know what it's like to have close family because that close family network that we had, you know, family get togethers, barbecues, Thanksgiving, whatever, that stopped. 
that destroyed everything that I knew as a family because she was the link that kept everybody together. Um, I've never been able to call my mom and say, you know, one of my kids, look what one of my kids did or, you know what I mean? I don't, I don't have that. I was pregnant with my second child. My, my daughter was a year and a half old. You know, I really never had that, that bonding that happens with a mother and their grandchildren. And, you know, had six kids and never been able to, there's only one person in the world who will ever dote over your children like a grandmother will. And my kids, I've never had that. And my kids never had that. Yeah. And that's, and a lot of times in the cases I cover, I, I discuss a ripple effect of how something like this happening, you know, even 30 years ago, even your kids are paying the price for it now. Absolutely. It, um, it caused me to have, um, a very high level of anxiety and panic. Um, when I see a police officer, my knees shake. Um, it caused me to probably be a little um, more secluded and, you know, suspicious of people. Um, and my kids definitely have known the effects of it because they don't know what it's like to really have a family, not like the family I had. Um, you know, I have brothers that I don't talk to because they associate with Norman. Um, I would love for my kids to have relationships with them, but for my own peace, for my own protection, I feel like I don't want him to know anything about my life. I don't, he doesn't have a right to see pictures of my kids or have anything to do with my kids. So I can't associate with anybody who has a, a relationship with him because my information has been shared before with him. And I, I, I cut them all off because it's, it's like a toxic, toxic, you know, you can't, you can't even have a normal conversation anymore because you have that in there, you know, just bombarding you. It's, it's very stressful. Yeah, very, very, uh, just a tough all the way around, just from the, the light sentences, the the tearing up of your family, just, and all these years later, you're still, you know, wanting justice that you feel you never really got. But the, the one thing I think you haven't forgotten, and you're, you're, you mentioned that you're going to keep trying to, to find some way to to hold someone responsible the way they should be. And I, I think your mom would probably be proud of you of that. I, I, I could not describe to you um, the amount of peace and joy it would give me just to know exactly what happened. It, at this point, I don't even care. You know what I mean? Nobody, had, nobody else has to go to jail. I need to know what happened. I need to know who was really responsible because it, it's, it's something that, you know, you're laying in bed at night. You're not even thinking about it. And all of a sudden your, your mind goes to that and you're, you replay all this stuff in your mind and you're like, it just doesn't make sense. Hmm. Just something that stays with you. It doesn't really go away. 
I don't think it can go away because it doesn't make sense. You can't make it make sense. Not the way everything turned out. And, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. I would love it if, you know, whoever did it went to jail. But, you know, at this point in my life, I'm I'm 50 years old, you know. I just need to know what really happened and, and why, you know, and, and to be able to make sense of it all. It would be great if she could get justice. Absolutely. Um, after all these years, I think I... I think it's more important to know who really did it and why they did it. Even, you know, to get, I know that whoever did it, they're going to pay, you know, when they stand before God, um, if they paid on earth, you know, fine, great, but whoever did it is going to answer to God for it. Um, I just, I don't think that I will, ever feel the same on Mother's Day. I'll ever feel the same on the day she was murdered or um, her birthday or any other day until I know exactly who did it and why they did it. Because the the police department story just doesn't make sense. Hmm. Well, I hope somehow that despite the, the chips being stacked against you, that you somehow find out what happened and the full truth and uh, I, want, I want to thank you for coming on to, to discuss your mom's case and share the details with us. Thank you so much. I um, I really appreciate you inviting me. And who knows, maybe somebody somewhere has the answers and is willing to come out and let them be known. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'd like to thank Sonny Landon for writing and research assistance in this episode. We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family, and I hope you'll join me for it. But before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody.